0: Hello, this is Tom Williams, and you are listening to Talk Theater in Chicago. My guest this week is John Steinhagen, who is well-known to uh, a lot of the people in Chicago theater, and he has two plays opening up in town. Hello, John. How are you, Tom? Hello, everybody. Great. Uh, tell us about the first one that's open, Blizzard of 67 which a lot of us dinosaurs have, have fond memories of.
1: <laughs> I don't know that you have fond memories of it unless you were, you know, a little boy or something like that and running around in the snow with your sled.
0: No, I, I got stuck in a Greek diner for three days <laughs> in a card game, but we had food, and it was so cool. The man, it was at Belmont Central on the northwest side, and the man, uh, uh, the owner, fed anyone who came by, had people sleeping in the booths because, you know, the sure. town was tied up for, for two or three days. And, you know, the goodwill of that, it was, it was just such a good experience. Plus, I won a lot of money. So yeah, that's you know, that
1: remember. sounds like a play in itself there, you know. Uh, almost. But, uh,
0: obviously, you're too young to, to have uh, been around 45 years ago. So tell Thank us you. what got you to do, to, uh, uh, use this, this play? Because it's much more than just a play about, uh, a, a blizzard.
1: Sure. It's, um, it comes from a, a play that I was, uh, had tried to write maybe 10 or 12 years ago, it was originally part of uh, a play called All Men Are Created, and it was a theater piece for four actors, Um, and each scene would, I guess, illustrate some sort of point about man's inhumanity to man, or some kind of pompous theme like that, and each scene was set in a different decade, going back to the 1930s, so when I got to the 60s, I tried to think of, uh, you know, a situation, and for some reason, the blizzard popped into my head, and I had written this scene. And I I never did anything with the play. And about maybe 10 years later, the scene reappeared in my head. And I thought to myself, well, maybe that might be the basis of a a full-length play. So I took that old scene, which is essentially the last scene of the first act of Lizard 67, and wrote outwards. You know, I tried to figure out what situation would have led up to that scene and what would be the consequences of that scene uh in the second act so that's that's where it originated and uh, you know blizzard blizzard of 67 always always something to talk about every time i mention it to someone they've always got a story if they were around
0: yeah the funny thing is it's 79 what might have been a bigger blizzard uh but 67 was kind of the first one that really paralyzed sure chicago because I think there was one in like 1919 that was bigger, but you know there was like five cars in 1919.
1: Right, and I don't know anybody who was around for that to talk to. But. Yeah, but I'll tell you,
0: you you really did your homework. Tell us how you how you researched it, because I'll tell you, you hit it right on the nose.
1: Newspapers, really. I mean, I went uh, I went to the archives of newspaper reports of the you know the newspapers that were around at the time. There was a even a spread I think in the Tribune's Sunday section. I don't know if it was called the Sunday section in sixty seven, but I think it was. And that had a ton of photos uh and information about what was going on that week. Uh plus a lot of personal recollections, you know, I spoke to my father and mother extensively as well as, you know, family members who had been around at the time. Uh anybody I knew who had been in Chicago in sixty seven, whether they were you know a child or an adult or what have you and it just got their impression of what was going on
0: well uh the play you you've come up with is much more than a story about a blizzard yeah it uh i i think uh it's kind of um the aftermath of the the man in the gray pl- flannel suit
1: sure oh absolutely it's uh you know it's it's set in this nameless faceless business world i mean obviously it's set in the chicago loop but we don't Really address where they work, you know, the office that where these fellows work or where they live. I mean, it's just those kind of details I didn't feel were important. It was just that they worked for a particular corporation and they shared a car and they, you know, went home at night to the uh, near west suburb, wherever that may be. Um, I felt what was more important were the details about their personal lives, the kind of things that they went home to, what was kicking around in their heads and, um, the dynamic of what's going on when they're in the car together, and of course when they're in the office together.
0: Yeah, tell us about the four characters because in such a short time, in a, in a few early scenes, you you establish these characters as as fully rounded, and and each of them being u- unique. And what I got thought was cool was uh, they really kind of didn't like one another. They're, no, yeah, as it turns out, <laughs> which is, which I've heard. I've never been in a carpool, but I've heard. A lot of stories like that about carpools. So
1: that's another level. I just assumed that, you know, in my mind, when I was, you know, putting these four gentlemen together, that it was just something that they did out of necessity or because they all knew that they lived within a certain, you know, a couple blocks of each other and, you know, where they where they lived in the suburbs. So, you know, it's always interesting to me, well, you know, if they really don't like each other, why did they start this? But like I said, it may have just been perhaps who knows an incentive through the office that if you conserve fuel so and such would happen or the office would pay for your travel. I don't know. But, yeah, the um yeah, the specifics of their life happen very quickly because the play is told sort of like a um uh, I call it a living novel approach, you know, where you're going to see the scenes enacted. Uh but you're also going to have the characters explain what was going on inside them you know we'll see what goes on outside but you know they'll address us and give you some narrative
0: and it's a it's it's sort of a comedy kind of a dark comedy or oh, a sure. comedy with a little bite to it as, as i believe that's your shot your style
1: well it's uh you know in the case of the comedy it was a question of well uh, you know no matter how you look at it probably these guys might come off as a as rather odious <laughs> or uh unpleasant or whatnot like that but You know they're they're funny, and so certainly for the first act, most of the tone of the piece is comic in some way. At least the way they're interacting with each other in the car and at the office, Uh, and then the blankets pulled out from under you, and they're in the second act, and the situation happens. And uh, give us a quick
0: thumbnail of each of the four characters, sure, because I think they're 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 four such memorable characters that. That on some certain level we relate to all four of them.
1: Absolutely. Well, the gentleman driving the the car for the story is a character named Landfield, and and this fella has lost a, a daughter to pneumonia several winters before, and he's a rather moody guy who's been with the company for a very long time, and uh, seems that he's um, a little bit of a I, I don't I don't know if you would say that he's an alcoholic, but he's been lately turning to uh, the bottle. Uh, by the time our story begins so he's got a lot of issues that he keeps bottled up uh the person sitting next to him (laughs) in the car the shotgun as he likes to say is is a fellow named Henkin, and this guy is uh successful he's the one who gets the promotion and the new car the 67 chevy caprice that he begins to crow about uh and he's rather you know i wouldn't say a corporate slime ball but he certainly is uh slick and ready to go he's uh Lives alone, doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have kids. Uh, he pretty much, as he explains during the play, has uh, no anchors of life, and he pretty much just sallies forth. He probably thinks that he's superior to the other fellows in some way.
0: Oh yeah, he comes off that way
1: indeed. And the fellows in the back seat, there's a there's a character named Bell, and Bell is a rather sad sack type of person who has a wife and child, but he's just kind of given himself over to the fact that he's got a job and he's not going to go anywhere. Uh, it's just, you know, there are things that irritate him, obviously, that he tells us in the story uh, about his life and about just working in general in his own fears. But he chooses just to keep his mouth shut and go along and, you know, hopes that he keeps his job or, or whatever. And you he, know, he yeah. found his niche and he's in it.
0: And he's the kind of guy that we all know someone like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But the, now the last kid. Oh, a, <laughs> yes.
1: The Emery. Emery is, uh, as, he, as he says right at the beginning of the play, I'm younger than everybody else, and he's proud of it. This is a very interesting character for me because he's supposed to be about 25 or so. And it, I wanted to show this character, who I think is, I shouldn't say the most difficult character, but it's the most unusual arc because he starts the playoff as a rather confident, cocky kid. You know, and he comes from what seems to be a family that has no shortage of money. I mean, they're all, you know, Midwestern suburbs, but they're affluent, you know, so there's a lot of things that have been done for him in his life, and he has a lot of ambition. He finds during the play that all of these things really don't exist, that he's, you know, you know, because of the situation that he has to face, and just the way he's treated by the others, um, that he's pretty much alone, and he, he doesn't have, he he there are no guarantees in life, is what he ultimately learns. It's a, a very interesting character to me
0: yeah, he and each of these characters you know certainly have their moments, oh sure, so now you spend the first act uh introducing us to these characters, getting us to re- be able to relate to them, like them or dislike them, but care about them
1: yeah, well, the one thing that's going on aside from their personal dynamic being. Uh, explored and, you know, as it develops, you know, these resentments and whatnot and these problems, while that's developing, the weather is doing crazy things at the same time. So, it you know, we keep going back and forth between the narrative of the plot and the characters to the narrative of what's happening in the weather, you know, starting off with a day that's 65 degrees and then going to thunderstorms at night then the temperature dropping and then finally the snow begins to fall. You know, that the weather is doing some crazy, unexpected things just as these as these men are about to have their lives thrown up for grabs, you know. And
0: what an omen that that was the weather the week the sure. show opened last Friday. Ugh. Isn't that amazing?
1: Uh Well, I wouldn't call it amazing. <laughs> I would call it I hate winter. <laughs> you know yeah. I, But you know, I mean, know. it went
0: from the 50s down to yeah. to uh, not a, quite a blizzard, but, a, you know, a nice little spanking yeah, we of had snow.
1: A preview on the 6th, and on the 6th it was that, you know, we had a Friday preview on the 6th, and it was like, I don't know, 55 degrees. And the preview audience that night when they, get to the line in the show about, it was 65 degrees in January. Who did, you know, would you believe it? Everybody nervously laughed because, you know, you you sit there in 55 degree weather in January and wait for the other shoe to drop. And it sure enough did by next week, you know. Yeah, and
0: uh, once the snow, you're sort of setting up what's going to happen in Act 2 by talking about the snowstorm. Sure. Yeah, the And what I got a kick out of it, uh, and the young people in the audience didn't get it, was, was when, uh, uh, Landfield puts chains on his car. Right. People don't know what chains <laughs> no. are. I remember
1: those. I uh, Absolutely. Well, that's what we have with that little funny scene, and the actors do a little bit, you know, of physicality to show exactly what it means to, you know, ride around in something like that. Because I
0: remember my father used to put those on, and, uh, it, it, it just made the ride so terrible. Absolutely. I mean, they were literally chains.
1: Well, my father, you know, told me that he put his chains on his tires. He was all set to go, and yep. Sure, knew all about
0: it. And then they found out that didn't work. Well, you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> <They> <laughs> we, have to, we all have to make our mistakes and, you know. Yeah. So, all
0: right, so now you've got this all set up. The snowstorm comes. And act two, it, it the, the play changes tone, but it's all been set up by act one. So there's, a, there's an arc. There's a, a, you know, a well-structured uh, dramatic arc in, in your work.
1: The the gentlemen have all become resentful of Henkin for one reason or another, sparked off by his promotion, and, his you know, he's gone out and he's bought this fancy new 67 Chevy Caprice, and things are just roiling along in Act One, and by the time they get into the car at the end of Act One to drive home in this blizzard, you know, after the snow's been falling for 12 hours and it's ghastly, and they have this long car scene where everybody's, last nerve is being worked you know it's it's dangerous it's this and that and of course an argument erupts in the car and things are said and all of that is i guess you could say replaced by the car coming to an absolute halt when their road is blocked by what looks like could be a a motorist who's in trouble
0: yeah now let let me stop you there yeah because i don't want to go much further because (laughs) <laughs> to, right. except, That's a good edge of point, right? Yeah, sure. and, and, and except to say that those scenes and what you wrote and how you structured them was just brilliant.
1: Well, the guys, I got to tell you, the the cast that oh, yeah. I have for this the show, I lucked out. I mean, I have. John Galluck and Andy Lutz and Andy Hager and Stephen Spencer and they are fantastic. You know, I would watch this thing in the rehearsal knowing full well that obviously who has the budget to put a real car on stage. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, well Chicago Dramatists doesn't and uh, you know, I said this is this is just a play about, you know, that's going to be using the four chairs and there's not a moment that I never personally believe that they were not in a car. Oh, I agree. You know, or wherever it was that you know how they how they work the play throughout the show and rearrange just these few Prop pieces to be wherever it is that they have to be. But my goodness, I believe them constantly that I felt like they were in this, you know, rather claustrophobic situation. And
0: yeah. And let me,
1: let little, me add that uh,
0: Steven Spencer, who had to uh, end up playing a little girl and a wife. Well, he plays, was a, so he plays a, he
1: actually plays a little boy. He plays boy, a Bell's, yeah. he comes out as Bell's son yeah. and he comes out as Landfield's wife. And, uh, but I'll tell you, his father.
0: several people told me they said just the, the, the body language he put on. That they saw a woman there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's a phenomenon. I don't know how he does it. Uh, I don't want to know how he does it because it's theater magic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's just the subtlest of things that, that Steve has done. Uh, and obviously is not camping up any of that. All and right. yeah, I mean, I, there's, there are times when I would watch the thing, you know, the scene between Landfield and his wife, and it would suddenly occur to me, oh, I'm listening to two men do this scene. But it, you know, but I'd go right back into the story and, you know, it was just, it was just a little funny thing, but, you know, that's the, I guess that's the power of, uh, yeah. of live theater is that you can come out and you can do this and you can make it believable and no one thinks twice. It's He's incredible. I mean they're like I said they're all incredible but my god, you know, you know, throwing this at an actor and say, "Well, this is what you get to do for a little while." Yeah. And just have him go at it with such uh, you but know. But all justice. the
0: dramatic parts that that, sure. that uh, again, the details I want to leave for folks cuz you're really, you know, it, it's really powerful. Uh the, the transformation, the 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 fear, the guilt and so forth that, that is established. Uh, the actors really Show all of their skills, from their comic skills to to their dramatic and emotional skills. Yeah,
1: and Russ and Russ uh, Russ Tuttero, you know, who uh, oh, Russ directed the piece. I mean, his uh, you know his eye for this show has just been you know incredibly unerring. Uh, the way he's uh, you know, of course, you know, the actors are doing this wonderful job doing what it is they do. But oh, um, well, Russ is one of the best. Oh,
0: and, and he's he's so good at nurturing uh, new works. Uh, oh my and, God, and, yeah, and yeah. it's it's an honor to. To, and anyone knows that that knows a Chicago dramatist knows that when they mount a show, you gotta go see it because it goes through this this long process before and it's ready.
1: Oh sure. I mean I I can't tell you how much that I I've learned about theater, about writing, about acting, just being in the room with those you know, with Russ and the four fellers. It's uh, you know, it's like having my own master class, you know, just specially for me. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs>
0: and folks, you gotta get to dramatists to see Blizzard. Blizzard sixty seven. Yeah. It, it is. It is a funny play and it's a powerful play, and it's, it's just so entertaining. And, a, and congratulations on well, thanks that. Thanks very much. It's so great. now let's get to your other one. Amazingly, folks, this guy's not only got got one world premiere going, he got two going.
1: Yeah, that talk about a talk about a phenomenon. You know, we talk about the weather in January and being sixty five degrees being a phenomenon, but yes, it's ultra rare to have two shows going up around the, around the same time.
0: So tell us about—I uh, know it's coming up at Raven Theater, right?
1: Dating Walter Dante. Dating Walter Dante, yes, indeed. That starts previews on February sixth and runs through March twenty-fourth. It's directed by Cody Ethel. We have a fantastic group of folks. What would you—what would you like to know about that one?
0: <laughs> well, uh, first of all, it's—it's it's a departure for for Raven. They—they uh, usually do a lot of the classics so it's it's a compliment to have them doing your play
1: yeah it it is very much, and I you know of course you know eternally grateful to Mike Menendian for wanting to program it and um so tell us
0: about it i i I sure. heard hints of uh, of uh, drew Peterson in the give us the basic plot line i
1: suppose I suppose you could say that what it is is that it's a play that was inspired by a radio story that I heard this was a couple years ago maybe in you know the fall of 2008 it was the play was is my way of exploring my response to something i heard about drew peterson mm-hmm. and i recall being in the car going to a rehearsal hearing a story about drew peterson at the time something was going on this is uh, before he was placed under arrest and i remember saying to myself my god why is this guy not arrested everything you know he's this blah 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 and then I thought to myself, no, wait a minute. I mean, there's obviously a good reason why he's still walking around free. I mean, maybe they don't have this and they don't have that. And I'm already condemning this person without really knowing the facts.
0: Yeah. And we all did that. Sure. And then we said that, well, he wasn't arrested because he was a police officer.
1: Well, you know, we have all sorts of, you know, things because, you know, the, but the thing is, to me, is like, you just don't know. You just don't yeah. know, you know, and that was what made me want to write uh, a story about a similar situation in which uh, a young woman um, begins dating a gentleman who has a little bit of uh, public notoriety attached to him because of some bad luck in his life. He has uh, two wives. One, his first wife has you know, died uh, 10 years before, and his second wife has been missing for some time. And, of course, everybody in the world thinks that Walter Dante is some sort of, you know, murderer, criminal, God knows what, and it's only just a matter of time before bodies are found and this and that and the other. But she has met him under, you know, completely different circumstances. And, you know, even though the the first wife has been missing for a year, they they do start this very tenuous relationship. Um, When she finally decides not to keep it a secret from her friends, things begin to, shall we say, explode because her friends react the way I would react, you know, like yeah. I did that one day in the car. Stay away from this guy. Absolutely. You know, something's and going on. Yeah, so I mean, so the play is not about Drew Peterson. No. It's the play is about, um I guess you could say it's about how we maybe jump to conclusions. And you might say, well, sure, but, if, you know, if it's so blatant that, this, you know, this is horrible. But it's two people who are trying to have a, a normal relationship and they're never going to have a normal relationship because of all this baggage that's come down upon them the press coverage the hiding the So this is highly dramatic? Well, sure. Yeah, you know, it's it it moves along. It's not, it's told in a, another, you know, in a in a way that's not dissimilar from the way that Blizzard 67 is told and that it's a living novel where we have there's seven characters in this play and six of the characters um, act as narrators, just like the gentleman in the car.
0: Oh, I love that format. You know, yeah.
1: Yeah. tell the story too. It is like, you know, you open a book. If you were to open a book and the characters would say, you know, thank you for finding us and now we're going to tell you what this happened and why we're trying to figure it out and, and things like that. So it, you know, it does, you know, span many, many different scenes and many different takes on, you know, what happens between Laura and Walter, uh, over the course of the show.
0: Tell us some of the, uh, actors that are in the show, because it's, it's got a, a, a strong
1: cast. Oh, yeah. Well, we've got, uh, Jason Heisman is playing Walter Dante, and Kristen Collins is playing Laura Bakersfield, Bridget Didmars, uh, Mike Boone, Scott Allen Luke, Antoine Pierre Whitfield, and Stacey Barra. That's a strong cast. I believe I've, I believe I've just said seven people. I've, 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 yeah, I think I got them all. <laughs> well, I'm looking at the press release too, and I think you did cover them yeah. all. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, they're all and they're all required to, you know, play some pretty interesting characters. You know, uh, not just one particular stripe. They they're all going to hopefully show many different aspects to their personality and air their doubts about the situation. So again, give us the, the openings. Uh... Previews start uh, February sixth, and. Um, We'll run through March twenty
0: fourth. Yeah, I believe the, the the press opening is the twelfth.
1: Sounds yeah, it sounds yeah, yeah it's gonna, calendar. It's gonna be an interesting day for me because I'll go to the closing matinee of Blizzard sixty seven. Leave Chicago, dramatists drive up to Raven and attend the opening night of Dating Walter Dante.
0: Isn't that a heck of a problem to have?
1: I, I tell you, you know, it's, these are one of those things that happen only once in a lifetime. So I made, you know, make sure the car's and you know working, and I have a tie, or you know, I've brushed my teeth or something, and <laughs> try to that, that, keep it all that, together. That is amazing, and
0: and I'd also like to bring up another. There's two other aspects to, to John Steinhagen. Oh. There's the actor. Ah. I mean, you've done so many terrific roles. Again, lucky to be. Ah, I don't think it's luck. I think it's skill.
1: Well, that's, that's very
0: kind of you. One might be luck. (laughs) Not as many as you've had. Sure. But what about, what about the musician and composer? Because, uh, the musical you wrote for Porchlight, tell us a little about that. That was unbelievable.
1: Oh, the Teapot Scandals. Yeah. yeah, that, uh, that premiered, uh, well, that was about five years ago this time. It, I think that that opened at the end of January. Yeah, the Teapot Scandal. Um, that was a fun time. I had, I, I'm so lucky to work with a bunch of different places and people who are so, uh, inspirational and supportive of the things I do. And, you know, I have to thank, you know, the folks at Porchlight for the Teapot Scandal at the time when they were trying to put together a premiere and had asked me what I wanted to do, if there was anything that I wanted to approach as a, you know, subject matter for a new musical. And I said, yeah, how about the Harding administration? And uh, they didn't even bat an eye. Yeah. And it they, well, said, go for it. And well, so, Walter's
0: got good judgment. And, oh, and absolutely. Yeah. And he he saw a, new, a great score.
1: You know, and everybody over there was just so supportive And You know, I said, all right, fine, I'll go away. And, you know, six and, months later i came up with a script and score we had a reading and then you know and i went away worked on it some more we had a concert reading at the mercury and then after that they put it on their uh season and fun times you know
0: and we've all seen you as as a pianist on stage
1: sure well i used to do music direction a lot uh for years and years and years and years and years i haven't done any in a while the last uh Last show I believe I did musical direction for was, um, the Sondheim, Side by Side by, Side by Sondheim at Light Opera Works. Yeah. But, uh, the good that news. That was is, terrific, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. again, working with incredible people and some fantastically gifted artists. But the, the good news is that I'll be, uh, putting on my music director hat again this spring when Signal Ensemble Theater does their, uh, premiere of Hostage Song, which is a musical that's out of, uh, folks in, New York will be coming in to take a, a look at that premiere.
0: Is, who is that one of yours? No,
1: it's, um, I, I don't have the, uh, I don't have the writer's names, uh, in front of me at oh, the yeah. moment, but it's a, it's a new piece that's coming out of, uh, New York City, and it'll be the Midwest premiere of that. Well, that's gotta be exciting. Yeah, you're Golden gonna be Tomorrow's music directing. Yeah, and I'll be the music director for that. And it's so. good that Signal, you
0: know, they're, they're dabbling a little into musicals, and I, I, they, those folks again do terrific work. You
1: know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a proud company member of Signal on Hey, I
0: remember there. your, 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 well, I call it your gambling point. Sure. Yeah. Aces. Aces.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, Aces was written especially for those folks and, um, we had a good time.
0: Uh, in, in closing, uh, how many of your works are, are, are being produced around? Are you getting them published and getting them around, uh, to other
1: theaters? I don't, I come? don't have any scripts in rental at the moment, but, uh, I'm working on it. It's just a matter of sending the manuscripts off to, uh, you know, the places where, you know, like uh, Playscripts Inc., dramatists uh, Samuel French, and stuff like that, and seeing if anybody will uh, put them into circulation. I mean, there's also talk nowadays about, uh, I guess you could say, self-publishing in a way where you can, you know, or you know, or doing something like that, or books on demand. There's, yeah, there's always several different ways to do that. But, yeah, no, at the moment uh, I've got nothing in rental, but uh, well, when you get time scripts that are making get time
0: in between all of these little ventures, because uh, you know Chicago are the, the country starting to respect Chicago works. Look at the stuff dramatista and came they off and oh, so forth yeah, so and Tracy Letts and on and on, so that you know you, we got to get your stuff out there because I know when I talk to people in other cities, they're all saying send us more you know we need more good scripts right
1: right right well you know if i if i had a lot of money and any business savvy i would uh, i would start my own you know play distribution company for our chicago artists who um you know, write these fantastic plays and musicals that uh, need to be seen and circulated throughout the country. Yeah, well, I mean, the, list, the list in my mind goes on and on and oh, on. Oh yeah, you know.
0: But your your work certainly goes up there. Well, you're to be congratulated, and it's it's an exciting time to uh, yeah to be in time. How about acting? What's your next gig?
1: I'm going to be appearing in Arthur Miller's The Price with Chuck Spencer. Ooh. Uh, that that starts previews February 28th at Raven on their main stage. So I'm I'm very excited about that because Chuck Spencer.
0: Oh, he's awesome.
1: Absolutely, you know, and this is you know, and, and I've seen Chuck in shows um, for years, and just a brilliant, brilliant. And I hope he's not listening to this, so that you know it's impossible to live with him on stage. You know, <laughs> after I say that, <laughs> nah, he's but you know, guy. when Mike Menendian said, you know, I, I I need to cast the two brothers in Miller's Arthur Miller's The Price. Uh, would love it if you would play Walter, the successful surgeon, and I said, "Who's who's playing the the cop, the brother, and said, Chuck Spencer?" And I, I said, "Done."
0: Yeah, that's good. <laughs> it's got to be, and the energy you guys will have on stage. Oh, uh,
1: you know, it's it's daunting, but it's and it's going to be a challenge, but it's it's going to be an exciting time. I just started rehearsals for that this week, so between one thing and another, I'm you know. Taking my vitamins and, uh, <laughs> and whatnot, trying to get some sleep here and there.
0: Well, to, uh, 2012 looks like it's going to be a, a
1: good year for theater all the way around. Well, you know, it's always a good year, but, uh, you know, for theater. And uh, I just, you know, look forward to working more and seeing if I can get any more productions of the work. I've got some stuff that I wrote last year that I was able to get, uh, public readings at Chicago dramatists. Um, see if I can, uh, find homes for them.
0: You, you don't, uh, let any grass grow on you, do you?
1: Oh, well, you know, why, sh- why should I? I mean, if not, I just sit around and watch TV and, <laughs> you TV is good, you know. I... Some of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. But, uh, you're to be congratulated. <laughs> and folks, get out to see the blizzard of 67 yeah, and, and then get, get to Raven and you'll see, uh, one of our finest Chicago. I would say, I don't want to call it performers and creative persons.
1: <laughs> Thanks very much. I, you know, that's, no problem. that's
0: very humbling. Well, folks, go see a play this week.